Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Hello, and welcome to the Trial Brief. I hope that you and the people you love and care about are safe and healthy. I have a feeling we're going to be battling COVID-19 for some time to come, so don't let your guard down and make sure you stay safe. Ever since the very beginning of this coronavirus pandemic, when New York became the epicenter of COVID in the United States, the governor and the legislature have been grappling with managing the crisis. And I, I think Governor Cuomo was issued somewhere along the lines of 45 executive orders to date. I mean, we're at the end of June right now, and I think we have close to 45 executive orders. We've also seen the New York State Legislature enact important new legislation. And we've talked about some of these during prior episodes of the trial brief. But some of these actions may seem, at first blush, to make sense to you. They may seem to be the right thing to do. However, they may, in fact, have some negative long-term consequences. And today, I want to discuss one of those laws. On April 6th, uh, New York State passed the Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act, which provides immunity to hospitals, nursing homes, administrators, nursing aides, nursing attendants, EMTs, home health care workers, physicians, and other health care professionals from potential liability arising from alleged decisions, actions, and or omissions related to the care of individuals with COVID-19. And that would run from Governor Cuomo's initial emergency declaration of March 7th through its expiration, uh, which is, I believe, September. The legislation was included in New York's budget for the fiscal year 2021, and it creates a new Article 30D of the public health law. And today we're going to talk about the consequences of this act on people who have been injured by medical negligence related to this crisis, or not related to this crisis, and what that means for not only trial lawyers, but what it means for their clients. My guest today is none other than Matthew Geyer. If you're a lawyer in New York, Matt needs no introduction. He's, he's the preeminent appellate attorney in the medical malpractice field, bar none. He has briefed, argued, and won appeals in the largest medical malpractice verdicts in the state. As a partner at Kramer, Diloff, Livingston, and Moore, he has seen his share of record-setting verdicts working with Tom Moore and Judy Livingston. And many of us in the trial bar and lawyers here in New York rely on Matt for his insight and analysis of the law and of legislation. Matt is a member of the nation's top 1% of attorneys by the National Association of Distinguished Counsel. He's been selected to super lawyers, the super lawyer list from 2007 through 2019, selected to the best lawyers list since 2016. Uh, he's a fellow of the American Bar Association. He's uh, on the board of directors of the New York State Trial Lawyers Association. And Matt co-authors a number of treatises and law journal articles that lawyers here in New York rely on. He's the co-author of New York Medical Malpractice, which is a book I've used hundreds of times over the years that I referred to. And I couldn't think of a better person to have on to discuss this today. So thank you very much, Matt, for being with us today. You're welcome, David. Why don't you tell us a little bit about 
the New York's Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act? So this was passed really at the very beginning of the pandemic when it was looking really ominous in New York. And there were expectations of gross deficiencies in terms of number of hospital beds, equipment such as ventilators and healthcare professionals. The governor had already previously passed a number of executive orders aimed at increasing the number of healthcare providers by permitting uh, people who are no longer licensed or licensed in other states to practice here without a license. And also uh, people who are, have limited uh, licenses like nurse practitioners who are required to operate under supervision uh, or, or midwives and physician assistants and specialist assistants who are all required to operate under su- supervision, lifting those supervision requirements and, and also providing immunity for doing so without providing the treatment without supervision. And that was originally, in, in uh, most of it at least, was in uh, Executive Order 202.10. Uh, at that time, the governor also provided more broad uh, immunity uh, across the board by expanding the Good Samaritan statutes that were in place to basically uh, apply to anybody where they were providing treatment directly related to uh, COVID-19. Then they, during the budget process, proposed a provision that would uh, make it statutory, a provision in the public health law, and it's uh, public health law Article 30D. And the original proposal was very broad. It, it really applied to all health care services that are provided in the state during the period of emergency. The period of emergency began back on March 7th and extends uh, by, by the executive order to uh, September 7th of 2020. And the original proposal immunized basically all treatment except uh, for gross negligence. So it was pretty broad. And uh, when it was in the legislature, uh, they felt that was too broad, and they put in some limiting language. That limiting language uh, is the the focus uh, for for anybody looking at potential cases of malpractice that arise during this period. All right. So let's talk about that. You know, I want to talk about the consequences of this act on people who are injured through medical negligence related to this crisis and what that means for them. Right. So the operative section here, first of all, I'd point out that the the declaration of purpose of this statute, which is uh, Section 3080 of the Public Health Law, specifically says that it's the purpose of the article to promote public health, safety, and welfare for all citizens by broadly protecting health care facilities and health care professionals in this state from liability that may result from treatment of individuals with COVID-19 under conditions resulting from circumstances associated with the public health emergency. So that's the purpose, and it's an important purpose because, uh, you know, the danger is that overzealous uh, defense counsel could try to expand that far beyond what was intended. The the operative provision uh, is in uh, 3082 sub 1. That's the immunity provision. Basically, without, you know, reading the whole thing, I'm going to read the elements where it says that a a healthcare facility or professional uh, shall have immunity from civil or criminal liability for harm or damages, uh, I'm paraphrasing, alleged to have been sustained as a result of an act or omission in the course of arranging for providing healthcare services if, and now I'm going to quote, A, the healthcare facility or healthcare professional is arranging for or providing healthcare services pursuant to a COVID-19 emergency rule or otherwise in accordance with applicable law. B, 
the act or omission that occurs in the course of arranging for providing health care services and the treatment of the individual is impacted by the health care facilities or health care professionals' decisions or activities in response to or as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak or in support of the state's directives, and C, the health care facility or health care professional is arranging for providing health care services in good faith. You know, A speaks for itself, and it's just pretty broad. B is the one where the focus is. And there is an exception to this for, for, for gross negligence, of course. Yeah, if you could explain, you know, what gross negligence is, what recklessness is, and how that plays into uh, the, the plaintiff's burden in this. In my mind, gross negligence is kind of like what Potter Stewart said about pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> There's a little bit of that with gross negligence. And, and in this context, uh, gross negligence is going to be a, a relative thing. What was only negligence in March might arise to the level of gross negligence by late April, early May. In other words, after they've had a handle, had exposure to this, and know how to deal with things. So uh, you want to give examples, perhaps? And it's gross negligence, negligence or willfulness, reckless, okay? I heard reports the other day of uh, some nursing homes that have been, it was in the Times, I think, that have been uh, discharging patients in the nursing home to shelters and things like that because uh, it's more lucrative to take in patients who are being treated for COVID-19. So to me, that is a very clear situation that would qualify for the exception to immunity. Another circumstance that I heard of somebody who called me with a potential case in New York was a, a nursing home where uh, a young woman called up and said, my grandmother's in there. Do you have patients that have COVID in there or do you have staff with COVID? Because I'd like to get her out if you do. And they told her no. Turned out they did. The grandmother got COVID and she died. That's separate from you know being gross and negligent and willful. When somebody misrepresents, that's not even in good faith. So it would it would fail even before you get to the subdivision on on, on gross negligence. It would fail under thirty eighty two one sub c, which requires good faith. You know those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. If somebody was giving uh, hydroxychloroquine in March as a method of treatment. That might not be gross negligence. If somebody is doing that in May, I, w- I would think that that would be gross negligence after all the, the information came out about it, notwithstanding the you know, uh, uh, false information uh, being put out there by President Trump about that drug. Right. Uh, so the, these are the types of things that, that more clearly. But, you know, certainly we knew that we should not be keeping patients who have COVID with patients who either do not have COVID or if you don't know yet. So uh, when you violate that and you're keeping them together, that could rise to certainly the level of gross negligence. Now, it may be that there's simply no space at the facility and that there was no other way to do it. And that might be, you know, the response to that. you got to remember this entire immunity. It's not something that the plaintiff bears the burden of proof on. It is, uh, it is the defendant's burden. It's an affirmative defense. And it's going to have to be pleaded as affirmative defense and have to be proven. It'll be the subject of, of discovery. Right. And that's something that practitioners, uh, plaintiff's lawyers, will, will have to be very mindful of when they're making decisions on whether or not they're going to take these cases. Yeah. Well, let's go back to what I consider the, you know, uh, the meat of the whole thing, which is 3082.1 sub B. The act or omission has to occur in the course of arranging for providing health services and the treatment of the individual is impacted by uh, the hospital or the doctor's decisions or activities 
in response to or result of the outbreak. That's that's it. Was the treatment impacted by it? So if you're treating, if the if the claim is going to be about somebody who's got COVID nineteen or who's showing symptoms of COVID nineteen, and that's the question, it's going to likely be impacted. Those are the cases that are, are have to be scrutinized very carefully because if it's obvious that the treatment was impacted, then you only have a case if it's either not in good faith or if it uh, qualifies for gross negligence, reckless, willful, so on. Then the question is, what about if they weren't treating COVID or the symptoms of COVID and the person is getting treatment for other conditions? Then it's a much you know, uh, more uh, vague issue. And we would anticipate that uh, defendants will, they'll be putting affirmative defenses in almost any case likely that arises during the period of the emergency, just pro forma. And if, if it's a case that clearly doesn't warrant it, uh, it would be appropriate to, to make a motion either under 3211 or more likely under 3212 for summary judgment after discovery to strike that affirmative defense. There will be cases where, if it is likely, for instance, the patient had COVID and they were trying to treat COVID, where they might, instead of putting it as a further defense, move on to 3211 right out of the gate, saying it's covered by the immunity. But the vast majority of cases are going to be in between there. And they're going to be issues of fact for a jury to resolve as to whether or not the treatment of the individual was impacted by the healthcare provider's decisions or activities. The time frame... What month it was is going to is going to uh, answer a lot of those questions. Without question, like I was saying about gross negligence, there's a continuum. In March and early April is different than late April, May, and then June. And, and the farther out you go, at least the way things have been going in New York, uh, the better. And it also geographical. Uh, upstate did not have nearly the kind of uh, situation you had downstate. So to, for, for arguments that, uh, that non-COVID uh, patients, that their treatment was impacted by it, are, are going to be much tougher up there. And they're much tougher to make as you get farther away from the peak of the crisis. Right. Uh, in terms of evaluating cases, if it's not a COVID case, I would first look at the merits of the case as if it wasn't you know, a COVID situation and just look at that. If it's a case you would otherwise take, then you got to determine what the likelihood is of a successful affirmative defense of immunity. And it all goes into the mix. It's going to require, you know, discovery because it's their affirmative defense that they put it out there. You get to discover why. I mean, it's not just good enough for, you know, a doctor to be prepped to say, oh, I I had to rush out because I had to go treat COVID patients in the COVID ward. Uh, You know, there's going to be a lot more specificity that's going to be required other than just a self-serving statement. And 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 then there should be documentation. Uh, you know, certainly if if the doctor is going to come and claim that the stream was impacted by COVID, you would expect there to be something in the record as to how that that would be. And if there's nothing in the record, if anything else, you know, could be really viewed as contrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will also be documents as to what if you're talking about a hospital. And by the way, once you're outside of the hospital, it's a, it's going to be a lot tougher in a physician's office to make this argument. I mean, I guess arguably you could have a situation uh, where uh, a patient is calling up with chest pains, and uh, although normally you'd send them to the hospital, but let's say the doctor would normally have, uh, in this situation, the patient come in and check them out. He might say, sure, I didn't have him come in because I was afraid 
of, uh, of exposing him or myself or any of my patients to COVID. That that's you know something they could try, but realistically, uh, the physician's office situation, the, the treatment should not be impacted by the response to the to the pandemic. Uh, you know, one of the strongest cases that I could see where you could not have immunity in any reasonable way would be a radiologist who's in his office reviewing mammograms and he misses a uh, and he misses a suspicious finding. For the life of me, I can't see how that that radiologist could claim, well, uh, the treatment of this patient was impacted by COVID. Right. What about a situation where wrong medication was given? Hard to fathom how the wrong medication uh, was was given. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, if you're in a hospital and the nurse says, I, I've been up uh, 48 hours straight, you know, because they did, they did uh, ease, as part of the executive orders, the, the sleep requirements, the hour requirements that under the Libby Zion laws regulations. She could say I was up forty eight hours and and I was the only patient the only the only nurse in the ward, and uh, I just picked up the wrong medication. you know that's right for a jury to decide, I guess mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you know there's a lot of ways of that they could be creative to 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 ex- expand the the immunity beyond that which you know which was was intended to do. That's what juries are for. Right. And then often, you know, the strength of the claim of immunity will just be a factor for many, many of us in, in negotiations. You've got a strong claim for immunity that, 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 that work operates for the defense's favor in negotiations. If it's a weak claim, uh, that does not operate in their, their favor, and you're looking more at the merits of the underlying case. So, uh, in fact, you know, uh, overreaching with this immunity, uh, which I expect will happen, poses, I think, a grave risk for defense counsel and for their clients. Because, look, let's face it, uh, the medical community has a fair amount of goodwill right now. Uh, maybe in nursing homes a little less so, uh, but the medical community does. If they try to embellish it in a situation where the treatment at issue was really not impacted, and they try to make it seem as if it was, so they're now taking advantage of it, they could they could lose that, uh, that goodwill that comes along with the current climate, and it could backfire on them and really irritate a jury. So even though it's anticipated that uh, many defense uh, counsel and, and doctors and hospitals will, will attempt to uh, take a very expansive view and, and, and stretch it, uh, they should tread lightly. It, it might backfire. Right. Right. Absolutely. Matt Geyer, can't thank you enough for helping us get through this. I, I couldn't think of a better person to do it. And last thing, what advice would you give uh, lawyers now who, who are evaluating um, medical malpractice claims that occurred during COVID? So the COVID cases themselves or, or, or patients being treated for COVID symptoms are very tough. Barring a gross negligence or bad faith situation, uh, those are tough cases, and, and I'd be very circumspect about that. The non-COVID cases, I would look at the merits of the case separately first, and then factor in what potential the, the COVID emergency could have had on the, the treatment, uh, if any. And uh, obviously, if you're talking about emergency room cases in mid and late March, there's going to be a, a, a stronger uh, 
room claim for immunity. If you're talking about uh, non-emergency room cases at all, at any time, I think that's a much weaker claim. And when you get uh, to emergency room cases after the, the curve began to level out, again, not so strong. But even if there's an initially an emergency room situation and they're admitted, and they're not admitted for COVID, but they're, let's say they're admitted with symptoms of stroke, then it should be the standards of care. And they're going to have to try to, uh, it'll be a situation where you have to try to stretch how, how uh, the response to COVID impacted on it. So these are the things that need to be evaluated. But in any non-COVID case, I would, I would, I would take a good look at the merits first and, and then factor in how it might be affected by it. Great. Perfect. Thank you, Matt. If you need to find Matt, Matt's at Kramer, Diloff, Livingston, and more here in New York City. Matt, keep up the good work, and thanks for everything you do. Thank you, David, and you too. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Take care. For my closing argument, I want to touch on another aspect of the immunity issue. Earlier this month, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, floated the idea of blocking coronavirus-related lawsuits for five years. And businesses and corporations, um, you know, led by the Chamber of Commerce, have been pushing for corporate immunity for many years. And I think they see an opportunity here to take advantage of, of this crisis. McConnell's bill would block consumers or patients uh, any claims they may have against businesses for harms related to the coronavirus between December of 19 and the end of 2024. There's no doubt that McConnell and the chamber are attempting to use the pandemic to accomplish their, their wish, long-held wish, for broad business immunity from liability. And they always tell you about their fears that the floodgates of litigation will open against these businesses. And that fear really is ludicrous. And, and it's ludicrous because it would be extremely difficult for a consumer or a worker to establish where they caught COVID-19. And in addition, the person would have to show that the business acted negligently or with deliberate indifference to health and safety risks. And if an injured worker or a consumer could show that the harm resulting from the company's negligence or deliberate indifference to health and safety, how can anybody justify immunity in those circumstances? The problem is that immunity doesn't just shield the worst actors. It also punishes the best by giving a competitive advantage to the businesses that decide to cut corners at the expense of worker and customer health and safety. Everyone wants the American economy to reopen. The point here isn't to punish businesses in that process, it's to incentivize them to protect their workers and customers. This, more than any immunity, will ensure that millions of Americans can get back to work as safely and quickly as possible. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on The Trial Brief. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.